0: Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the If You Market podcast, brought to you by Mountaintop Data and Johto PR. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm Sky Cassidy, and today we'll be talking with Seth Levine and Elizabeth McBride about entrepreneurship and uh, the true future of business, and and their new book, The New Builders Face-to-Face with the True Future of Business. Seth Levine is a partner and co-founder at the venture capital firm Foundry Group and um, Elizabeth McBride's an award-winning business journalist. Seth, Elizabeth, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Hi,
2: Sky.
0: So this topic, when you say something like the true future of business, especially uh, right now in the middle of, um, I guess we're still in the middle of COVID, I'm wondering when you wrote this book, was this (laughs) pre-COVID and does it still apply? (laughs)
1: Well, um, so the answer to that is we wrote it during COVID. So we were fortunate. We started the research before COVID. And then when COVID hit, we figured out that what we were writing about was actually incredibly relevant and so important that we accelerated the publication schedule. Um, and fortunately, our publisher, Wiley, was amenable to that Um So we were finishing this book in February. It's really just a few months old.
0: Excellent. I was picturing the dinosaurs writing a book like The Future of Foraging right before (laughs) the uh, I said, maybe I should have found that out before you guys came on the show. If you're like, actually, it doesn't apply anymore. (laughs) Moving (laughs) on. (laughs) What are we going to talk about now?
1: That would have been terrible, right? (laughs) To write a book that was just completely and, and I imagine it happened to some people, but not to us. Thank goodness.
0: Thankfully. Fantastic, fantastic. So this is talking about entrepreneurship, where business is going. A lot in here about um, financing of of businesses and how businesses succeed. From from what I've from what I've seen, something I wanted to get kind of nailed down right away is the difference between entrepreneurs and small businesses and startups and startups i knew there was one one i was forgetting <laughs> people seem to mix those around and kind of conflate them and i think different they like business works different in different of those and they have different goals and different ways of working and they they're, they're kind of very different businesses in a sense um, so, can you define those a little for the audience here?
1: Well, um, it's a great question. Um, we were talking before the show um that in all of the podcasts we've done, and we've done a ton so far, nobody's asked that question. and of course, I'm a writer, so well, we're both writers. I'm a journalist and a writer. Um, so I think language is really important. um and in fact, I just wrote a Forbes post um where I take on this issue and I say, that um, I'm taking the word entrepreneur back. It's been kind of owned by Silicon Valley and the tech world for a few years, for a couple of decades actually. And I'm taking it back to apply to all businesses. So making it broad again. So we're including tech startups, small businesses, and other kinds of startups in the word entrepreneur.
0: So it's all under for your purposes, all under that umbrella, because frequently people think like, oh, the guy who opens a um, restaurant or or has a shoe repair shop or a typewriter repair shop or any other type of repair shop that doesn't exist anymore. um, That's not an entrepreneur. It's a small business owner because they're not looking to to grow the business. They're not looking to scale, really. They just have a craft and they want to to practice it. But you're saying no, no. This is all under that umbrella.
1: Yeah, and I know Seth is going to jump in and talk about what's the really. You're interesting.
2: touching on something that we uh, that we talk about quite a bit in the book, which I think is really important. Which is that Silicon Valley has kind of taken over, right? Tech startups, if you will, have have taken over our view of entrepreneurship in a way that's that's. Detrimental. It's pernicious. Um, And you know, 100 years ago, a corner store, a farrier, a blacksmith. These these were all entrepreneurs. People that were that were you know creating small businesses, creating businesses, and really all small business people and and you know all people starting businesses were considered to be entrepreneurs. Uh, We. We actually talk about the history of this because it's it's quite interesting. Uh, we talk about it in the book, but uh, it was really during the 80s that Ronald Reagan decided that uh the, the term entrepreneur could be a, a a term that was useful in diplomacy, um, and it was most useful for him to differentiate it from kind of the rest of what was going on in the rest of the world uh, to, to describe tech entrepreneurship and, and and what was happening in Silicon Valley, which of course he knew very well as the former governor of uh, of California um, as entrepreneurship and, and sort of, he started that and then Silicon Valley sort of ran with it. And, and here we are, you know, 50, 60 years later and, and, and we start, you know, we think about entrepreneurship as, uh, as meaning tech entrepreneurship. And one of the things that, you know, we try to do in the book, obviously Elizabeth did with this article is really trying to take that word back, right. To be a much more inclusive word to describe all sorts of different business endeavors that people are, are undertaking, not just high growth tech businesses.
0: So it doesn't have to be a software with a plan to scale to a billion or pitchable to Mark Cuban, basically, to make you an entrepreneur now.
1: Right. What we argue in the book, in fact, that it's, it's dangerous to our economy to think that only big businesses are worthwhile. Small businesses are worthwhile, too, because there are so many of them. And in fact, some small businesses are innovative and influential and powerful in other ways besides their size.
0: Let's let's jump to the book now itself, face to face with the true future of business, the new builders. Can you give just a little summary of what's the um, what's the point of the book? What are you guys saying here in general?
2: Yeah, there are there are probably five key themes. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll split these up because uh, because it'll take just a minute. But uh, there, there are five key themes in the book. That we talk about. Um, one, uh, which was surprising to us, and, and people still don't believe it when we tell them, uh, is that entrepreneurship in the United States is in a profound state of decline. Um, and it has been for the last 40 years, roughly, and, and particularly so over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, that's in part due to what we just described, right? which is that uh, Silicon Valley and our sort of imagination has been taken over um, by this idea of, of entrepreneurship.
0: Is that um, actually or technically?
2: high-tech businesses. and
0: Right. But I mean, if it's in decline, if you say, if you redefine it, so only a small portion of companies are considered entrepreneurs, then you just kind of technically it's in decline. But is it actually in decline as well, where even in the expanded definition, it's declining?
2: Yeah, we use the... Ex- we use the expanded definition as we okay. did our research and crunch the numbers on it and the, the net new number of businesses of every type, all new businesses uh, is declining. And, and they're probably somewhere between a million and a half and two million fewer businesses today than there should should be. Um, had we stayed on the baseline that we were on, uh, and in fact, for the uh, a couple times, a couple of years after the Great Recession, 2000, really specifically 2009, 10, 11, uh, the net number of new businesses started in the United States was negative. More businesses failed than actually started up. The, those were the only three years that's ever happened since they started recording the data back in the 40s. Um, so, really, uh, it, it should be alarming to anyone who's paying attention, in particular because of the importance of small businesses. Uh, in our economy, right? 40% of our GDP, 50% of our employment comes from small businesses. Um, and the truth is the average age of a business in the United States now is g- growing steadily older uh, because businesses, new businesses aren't starting at the rate that they used to, right? So we're not, right. getting, we're not getting that fresh new, new business in there.
0: Well, it also seems like we have a monopoly law and you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why can't somebody just be super successful to the point where they, you're like, well, because it, it hurts the system. Like you could say, it's not fair. Why can't I just win all the time? And you're like, cause it makes it boring. And then nobody else wants to play. So sorry, but you're gonna have to sit this one out. Um, it, it almost seems like the system is set up in a way that says, look, yes, you're allowed to be successful, but at some point we're going to cap it and say, you're actually hurting the system that got you here. So it may seem like you should be allowed to eat anything that you can get big enough to eat, but we're going to, we're going to stop you. Um, so I mean, people, so people would say if you take this to the logical conclusion, what you're saying with entrepreneurship, you have less and less businesses, and eventually you have one business. And that's just not American capital. That doesn't work.
1: Well, yeah, because people want to own businesses because that's a great, like, it's a no, it's not, it's not good for. <laughs> to satisfying life. For but one. there's no
0: competition. There's no new ideas. You just get people siloing things and building moats around their business. And it's bad for the consumer, basically, mm-hmm. um, the, the more this shrinks.
2: It's bad for everyone, Sky. And ironically, it's actually also better for the big businesses, right? And you think about, I don't know, Standard Oil, for example. We And we actually, we talk a little bit about this in one of the chapters. Uh, of the book. But, you know, you think about Standard Oil or even the Baby Bells, for that matter, um, or or really Microsoft, which wasn't broken up, but was threatened to be broken up. Like all of these businesses, um, they actually uh, were very successful post-breakup. Right, and the owners of those businesses, Rockefeller, for example, uh, the shareholders of the Baby Bells, you know, uh, Gates and the other shareholders of of Microsoft, in the case of that threatened breakup, um, ended up uh, creating more wealth for themselves after the breakup than they did prior to uh, to the the business being broken up, and and. We talk a lot about one of the challenges of big businesses, they tend to think incrementally because they're building moats around their business and they, they don't want their core business to be threatened. And so, so right. much innovation in our economy comes from the smaller end of the scale. We lose so much when we quash small businesses, when we don't allow them to thrive. Right.
0: Well, when you're on top, your job is to freeze everything and stay on top. Not, you don't want to have to keep competing every single day. Um, so you, you love the competition to get up there. But then once you're king of the hill, you're like, let's just leave me on top of the hill here. And then your sole job becomes staying on top, which doesn't usually require innovation. Like you said, it requires stifling your competition.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And if you look through history, the history of the United States, it's kind of a push me, pull you history of we embrace We let the big businesses grow and then we tear them down, right? Or we break them up as as Seth said, right? Not necessarily, we don't destroy them, but we break them apart. Um, And we're in now kind of a down cycle and have been since the 70s. So we're in a down cycle of antitrust enforcement. So (laughs) we're probably due for an up cycle again, where the government steps in and says, okay, too much is too much.
0: So we've got, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you'd mentioned Seth, there's five points uh you want to drive home in the book we're we're touching on the very first one here entrepreneurship is in decline i I'd, I'd like to ask then why and what can be done about it
2: yeah i mean that's in large part sky that's that's a lot of what we write about in the book so we'll we'll try to we'll we'll skim the trees here but i would encourage your listeners of course to go get the book and read it because because these are the real questions that we ask right is is why is this happening and what can we do uh, to, to reverse these trends. And, and you know, the, the why is very complicated. It's due to a, a interaction of a number of different factors, starting with the, the people that are starting businesses today look very different than the people who started businesses 40 or 50 years ago. Specifically, more women are starting businesses, more people of color are starting, starting businesses. Black women are the fastest growing segment of new business owners, which is great because I, we're big fans of that diversity. The, the challenge with that relative to uh, the pace of new businesses being started is that our systems of financing those companies have not kept up, right? And so the people uh, that control finance still look largely white and largely male, and they haven't done a good job of getting money to the new builders as we call them these the women and the people of color who are actually starting businesses today and so you know that that's a, a large reason why and we talk a lot about what's behind that right there's wealth gaps there's uh, there's there's challenges in terms of how people access uh capital and mentorship uh, to start those businesses. Uh, you know, an interesting statistic that, that many of your listeners will probably be surprised to hear, uh, just given the mind share that it takes up, but only about 1% of companies take money from venture capitalists. Um, so it's and it's a lot of money, and these are important businesses. And, and those businesses, of course, support other mainstream businesses, main street businesses. Um, only about 17% of businesses take money from banks. And so 82% of companies are left to be started with the, uh, you know, the the scrappiness of their founders, right? Whether that's uh, borrowing money from a home equity line or, um, or getting a, a, you know, some capital from friends, family, you know, rich aunt or uncle, uh, or in many cases, a not so rich aunt or uncle.
0: You said they get money from banks. And my first thought was, yeah, most of those are probably like um, borrowing against their house or something like that from From my experience, what I've seen is banks don't really loan money to small businesses anymore. Um, Like, There's no such thing as, hey, that's a good business plan. Yeah, we'll give you a loan. The last reference I even saw to that was a Bank of America, maybe we have to bleep that out, commercial, um, where they were bragging about how they gave a loan to Pink's Hot Dogs in like 19... 60 or 50 or something like that. And I was like, look, B of A, if you don't have a more recent example than that, then shut the hell up about how you support small businesses. Who did you give a loan to yesterday? Not somebody in the 1950s, for God's sakes.
1: Well, you're like, you're hitting on uh like, yes, <laughs> I do think that big banks use small businesses to market themselves. Um, but the truth is that, um, The number of banks in the United States has declined from 14,000 to fewer than 5,000. Most of that decline is in the community bank sector, so that we've consolidated to these four massive banks um, that talk about support to small businesses, and some of them do good work. Obviously, there's tons of volume there, but they are just I mean, you know this, right? If you've walked into any of those big banks, there's not a whole lot of personality or personal connection or real care for a small business, which is what small businesses need. So small businesses to thrive really need, we need to restore that community banking sector or find a replacement for it, which could be a technology company. Could be a lot of things, right? We need some innovation in that space to um, be the financial and emotional support that community banks used to be.
0: Okay, um, so we went over entrepreneurship and decline. Um, you said there's four others. There's the, so what would the second topic uh, or main point of the book be for you guys?
1: So this, uh, I mean, so the uh, so the second topic of the book, what we covered some to some extent, is the idea that Silicon Valley's taken over the definition of entrepreneurship. So you got it in your first question, super smart guy. And then the important kind of core of the book, and the reason we call it the New Builders, is that. Um, the face of entrepreneurship is changing um, so that it reflects the demographics of the country today. Your listeners are all going to know this, right? Um, But the majority of the businesses today being started are being started by women and people of color. And in fact, women of color are the fastest growing group of new entrepreneurs in the country. So we call them the new builders, right? Hmm. We have created this business culture that doesn't value them, that doesn't value their work, that only sees value in the tech companies that are typically led by white men. So we're talking about let's change that dynamic and embrace this rising generation.
0: So you're saying there's a, and i am I'm gonna get a little bit controversial here. Um, I'm gonna play devil's advocate. So you're saying there's a decrease in entrepreneurship, but there's an increase in women, women of color, minorities getting into small business, being entrepreneurs. So it sounds a little bit like the white male is not doing their part in entrepreneurship anymore. (laughs) Is there a problem with, with the, the minority groups and the women um, not getting the funding and support they want? And, or is it really just that the white males have all put on their hoodies and stepped away to Silicon Valley looking for a unicorn?
1: Okay, I'm gonna answer this very quickly and facetiously, and then I'm gonna let Seth take this tough question. And I will say there is definitely a problem in the world of men because I'm a divorced <laughs> woman. <laughs> so 100% agree with that assertion. And now Seth, you can answer it in more of a <laughs> substantive way.
2: <laughs> I love it. Sky, again, uh, that's not that, that has not been how anyone's framed it to us before. I, I actually think it's a really interesting question. Um, so I, I think what's going on is that there is less of an entrepreneurial spirit amongst white men. I, I, I just I don't know another way to just to to, to look at the numbers and, and interpret it. Um, so there's no doubt that that's that's part of what's going on. Are white men too successful? And they're just like, I, I think it may be the opposite. Right. I mean, I think what we might be witnessing is that um, in particular amongst middle class, the middle class. It, it's especially middle-class white males. There is a significantly reduced entrepreneurial uh, spirit. Whether that's lack of financing, lack of social safety net, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that might be the case. I, I, we should be clear as well, though. I mean, we view new, the rise of new builders as incredibly positive, right? I mean, this can be an, an, an absolute. Um, boon for the United States and our economy if we do a better job of channeling money and resources to them.
1: OK, well, I think white men are tending to be more chickens in today's economy. That's what I think. There's also there's also some good uh, stats that show that um, the deep Americans fear failure more than they have since we've started gathering data about it. So like 20 years ago, there were stats that said one in five Americans was not starting a business because they feared failure. And today that stat is one in three, right? So that just shows you that people are more afraid of the failure that's attached as a necessary part of starting a business, right? Your chances of failure are kind of high and you might fail in one part and then you shift your attention to grow it in another way. But if we're, raising a generation of kids who are afraid to fail, which I think we are, and which arguably I think is very prevalent among white men now, um, that fear of failure. Is that a sociological
0: thing or a financial thing? I mean, if we're saying the middle class has been ravaged a bit and the, again, don't want to make it racial necessarily, but the white male part of entrepreneurship has either been pushed into the upper class or, And maybe they don't need to start a business anymore or push down into the lower class and they can't afford to be entrepreneurs anymore. So that would be the sociological part. And then there's the financial part. Is it that, you know, you used to be able to get that loan and now they're saying, hey, I have other options and the bank's going to make me. I need a house to put up or something like that. Like, I can't just get a loan. So there's too much risk. So the fear of failure before you had this net there of like, then you file for bankruptcy and now it's like, well, we changed the bankruptcy laws and you're going to have to put your house up. And like, we're just not going to take any risk on you anymore. Um, So is it a combination of those two things? One or the other, like what's causing this fear of failure that's keeping people out of getting into business?
2: Well, I think what you're describing is systemic sky, right? And I think one of the things that we write about is, you know, the U.S. has always existed in a, a system of some balance, right? And the balance ebbs and flows between big business and small business. And the truth is that our regulatory frameworks, our policies, our social safety, everything we have right now uh, is uh, tending, uh, trending towards Uh, favoring large businesses, right? And so it's become harder and harder for small businesses and the entrepreneurs that want to start those businesses to make it. And so I I think what's happening is is that people are, um, the system is stacked against people trying to start businesses in so many different ways that they've decided not to do it, right? And so I, I think that that's that's really fundamentally what we're describing. I think a lot of it has to do with finance, but a lot of it has to do with these other factors that relate to finance, right? My my healthcare is attached to my job. My you know bank won't loan me a money for my loan me the money for this business unless I put my house at, you know at risk. Um, things like that, which is what you were asking about. I think those those things are all absolutely true, and they weren't necessarily true 50 years ago. Um, and so those are all reasons why people are, have decided that it just frankly it's safer uh, not to start a, a business, right? And and the way the the study that Elizabeth just referenced, the way they they phrased the question is essentially something to the effect of do you have an, an interesting business idea that you're not pursuing for fear of of failure, right? I mean it's not are you afraid of failing? It 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 actually describes would you otherwise be doing something different with your business life, but for fear of failure, and the answer now is significantly more likely to be yes. And I think those are the, the factors I just described are the are the main factors that are driving that, that shift.
0: I'd throw one positive slant on that. Um, it may be that we're also, as a country, people are generally well off enough that there's something to lose. Um, so if you really have nothing, and you see immigrants come here and they have very little typically when they come here, There's not really a lot to lose. You fail. What do you lose? You got nothing to lose. Um, Whereas when everybody, you know, when the poorest family has a a wall sized TV and, uh, you know, entertainment left and right and and all the comfort, they're like, well, now I have I have something to I have something to lose here, even in American uh, poverty level. Um, there's just too much to lose to risk it. Whereas before, you know, you had one wooden stool and you're like, what am I risking? Who cares if I fail? I got nothing.
1: Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is something that the researchers believe, right? In developed economies, there are more choices for people. So they don't necessarily start their own businesses, but we're also seeing, um, a, so in a one explanation for what we found in the book is that well, people of color and who ha- tend to have less accumulated wealth, as you said, right? They're, they have less to lose, so they're going for it, or they want to build, so they're going for it. I think women and people of color are generally finding life in the corporate world to be pretty uncomfortable. I mean, we've seen plenty of evidence of that. So if you're miserable in the corporate world, then why not um, you know, go for a life of freedom and flexibility starting a small business? And I think you know, white men don't feel that same sense of discomfort.
0: So you say some people are saying, hey, failing there is better than succeeding here. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we tell their stories,
2: right? We yes. know that we know that's the case because we hear in particularly for black women, but 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 from other people that are, are not white men, that uh, they feel like they hit a ceiling at their at their main job but we, and or they're not paid as much as their their equivalent peers that are white and male or that uh, they feel like their work is not appreciated, and so they they do what entrepreneurs have always done, which is they you know they say I can do it better on my own, and they they take a step out and leave right. And you know, if there's any silver lining to COVID, it it's perhaps that um, there there are some signs that entrepreneurship's a bit on the rebound now. That may be temporary. It's not uncommon in times of crisis for. Uh, you know, for entrepreneurship to tick up. But but we know that the number of new business licenses that have been applied for is, is significantly up over the last nine months. And so, you know, hopefully that's, and that also, by the way, may be reflective of the fact that there are a bunch of government programs out there that sent money back to people individually, and then also to support businesses oh. and kind of proves the point that capital, you know, <laughs> capital is necessary and not even necessarily big sums of capital. I think part of our problem is, you know, Silicon Valley has also made us believe that you know, I'm in mean, a seed round now in Silicon Valley, which is sort of the description of the earliest rounds that fund that uh, companies take. Or, you know, might be three or five million dollars, right? I mean, someone pitched me a seed round that was forty million dollars the other day. I mean, that's not a seed round; that's like a growth round. Right. Um, and you know, the truth is that many businesses need you know tens of thousands of dollars to get started, not not even hundreds of thousands, and certainly not millions.
0: Or in, during COVID, it's like I just got two grand from the government. Do I buy a new refrigerator or start a business? Um, <laughs> I'm sitting around at home all day anyway, and uh, I can't pay my rent anyway. I might as well start a business. And yeah. a lot
2: of people did. Actually, the Upshot, uh, which is a New York Times publication, looked at that exact question. Right? Are people spending their uh, their stimulus dollars their their tax refund refunds on starting businesses? And I didn't surprise a it, it asked the question. Uh, it, you know, which Elizabeth and I assume was rhetorical because from our perspective, like, of course they were right. We know that when, when people are given more resources, they are more entrepreneurial.
0: Excellent. I think now is a great time to take a, a really quick break. I just had my four-year-old come in asking if I want to play, you know, let's say, let's take a quick break. And then uh, when we come back, we'll dig into this more. We'll try to touch on as many of these points in the book as possible. We got through, through two here um so far partially but of course the great thing about talking about a book is the book is out there and they're all in the book so it isn't like if we don't cover it here people will not know where and how to find it so you're listening to the if you market podcast so we've got seth levine and elizabeth mcbride we're talking about their new book and uh, that is the new builders face to face with the true future of business we'll be right back Are you looking for new leads or always in need of quality contacts for your marketing campaigns? But list companies and online tools are the worst, right? Well, then you've got to check out Top Data Search by Mountaintop Data. At Mountaintop Data, we're a team of weird people that actually like getting our hands dirty with sales and marketing data, and we specialize in business contact information. We compile and maintain a database of tens of millions of targeted high quality business decision makers with emails, phone numbers, mailing address, and all the information you need. Go to topdatasearch.com and request a free account with the promo code IYM1000, like if you market the podcast here, and get a free account with unlimited searches, no seat fees, and 1,000 free record download credits. That's topdatasearch.com. welcome back to the if market podcast we've got seth levine elizabeth mcbride here with us we're going to dig into you guys uh here a little bit so um elizabeth ladies first we'd like to know kind of what is it that you do you are a business journalist but can you tell us about um where you work what your work is like how you got to where you're at all that kind of fun stuff
1: yeah, and it is fun stuff. Actually, I really love what I do um, and uh, have since I, I graduated from college into the recession of the early 90s. And really, the only jobs available as a journalism major, but the only jobs available were in business journalism, which is how I became a business journalist um, and then have just stuck with it because it's it's a lot of fun, right? You can take so that You
0: You followed your passion of having a job.
1: Yes. <laughs> well... <laughs> But I followed the need to have a job, right, at that particular time. And then, and then I had kids um, and uh, didn't want to work 60 hours a week anymore. So I'm a prime example of that woman who's stepping out of the corporate world. I write about this often, too. But when I came back from work um, after having my first daughter, I had to work uh, like a 12-hour day. It was the blackout of... of 2003 in New York City I had to work a 12-hour day the first day I was back from maternity leave and I was breastfeeding right and so it was just an utterly miserable experience and that was the day I decided no more I am not doing this corporate job anymore Um, and I made arrangements to leave and that's when I became a freelancer. And then, um, <laughs> so
0: one day back and you were like, I'm out <laughs>
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I was like, if this can't, if this company does not value me enough to like give, cut me a little slack. Right. I gave, I had a baby two and a half months ago. Um, anyway, so that I became a freelancer then, um, then I, then I got a divorce like, uh, 10 years after that. And I had to ramp up my career and really make a living as a single mom. So that's when I became a solopreneur, uh, Tried to really make a living as a freelancer. Um, and then did that successfully for five, six years. Successfully enough, I had a lot of publications in, in big places you will have heard of, like MIT Tech Review and the Washington Post, places like that, Forbes Magazine. And was successful enough that the Kaufman Foundation um, gave me a grant then to launch my own publication. And that was two years ago. And that publication is called Times of E times of entrepreneurship so it very much covers the world of entrepreneurs that we're talking about right this broader world that includes a lot of women and people of color
0: it's interesting because your story there is basically sounds like the book it's about funding you got a grant without that grant you don't probably don't start um you end up you just leave the company you're with after after coming back and you, you take this jump almost out of necessity. You took the job in the, in the industry in the first place out of necessity, what's available. And it makes me think coming over to you, Seth and what you do, you work at the foundry group, you guys give tens of millions of dollars to startups. Maybe they should get a lot less money. So they're hungry.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Well, we joke, cause we actually have funded a number of businesses that, you know, took substantially less money than their, uh, some of their competitors, many of which were incredibly successful, um, and actually at one point I actually wrote an article about, you know, use your lack of financing to your competitive advantage because it keeps you hungry. Right. If and if you're sitting frankly, on $10 million,
0: you don't really need to push hard that day. you Yeah. Know. Well,
2: and, well, and more importantly, you'll spend it on stupid shit. Right. Yeah. So, um, and we've, we've seen that over and over and over again in the markets that we go after it and not, I mean, we've, certainly backed some companies that raised plenty of money, but, uh, but we've backed others that, you know, raised a fraction of what their, uh, counterparts have. And, and frankly have been more more successful than they have been. So, um, I think those are important lessons to remember.
0: That's capitalism competition, keeping hungry and get lazy. If you get fed too much.
2: Exactly. I think that's okay. exactly right. Well, and, you know, I mean, I like to say, I mean, I'm literally a capitalist by job description. So I uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly think about those things uh, in those terms. And, and and that is what I spend my, you know, I have a few, few jobs, it seems like, in, including my day job, obviously, one of which is, is now being a writer. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, so I started a venture firm. I was 2006, right? So 15 years ago, um, in Boulder, Colorado, of all places, um, called Founder Group, we now have actually grown quite large. We we've, we've got about three billion dollars that we manage uh, as a firm, and we uh, we invest not just in in companies, which is sort of typical to venture funds, but we also invest in other venture funds. We have about forty five underlying funds, uh, mostly smaller, kind of seed focused. A lot of uh, diverse managers in those in those funds uh, that we funded as well. So it's been, I mean, it's grown into a huge platform. Certainly not what I was, isn't what exactly I had in mind when we started it, but you know that's the beauty of. Starting something from scratch, you never know where it's going to go. So, well, if you um, grow,
0: if you start a platform planning on seeding people money to grow a big business, then you seem to have that mindset. So, you can't be shocked when it grows bigger. (laughs) All
2: of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we give all this advice to other companies about growing big. Um, and then we grow big ourselves. Yeah, it's. uh, I guess we shouldn't be shouldn't be shocked by
0: it. Kind of by definition, if the business model you set up to help them succeed succeeds, you're also going to grow bigger because you know that kind of trickles back. But the irony,
2: Sky, is that there are a few business models that are less prone to scale than venture capital, right? It just you know because it's very partner specific. It's not leveraged. It's like all the things that we that we would hate about a business that we invested in is true about our own business, which, which creates for this interesting dichotomy.
0: Interesting. So this might be uh, you can tell me, I'm not answering that question if you want, but it, it dawns on me, you guys have this book and you're highlighting this problem of lack of finance for small businesses. And yet you are running the foundry group that finances the very companies you're talking about being, you know, the Silicon Valley being a problem. Um, and you say you have these these other uh, branches where you you fund all these other things as well. What about funding small businesses?
2: Yeah, I mean that's not our business. It's a great question. It's just not our business model, right? And we and in the book we talk about. I mean we we call out Silicon Valley for a handful of things, but but you know we're not suggesting that Silicon Valley shouldn't exist and that that there's a problem with sort of Silicon Valley and its financing model. It works for certain types of businesses that have certain growth and outcome trajectories. Um, it doesn't work sort of for the rest of the economy. Now, I, I've been spending a lot of time, uh, in part because we've been writing this book, but lo- you know looking at and now investing in alternative capital models, right? right. So uh, non-venture-like, uh, investments. In fact, I can't really invest in venture anymore now that my fund invests in venture. Although we used to do that, um, but my partners and I actually have been investing in quite a few different models that are looking differently at, at how to get money to uh, more people of color, more women, and uh, and and using different financing structures so that they can fund different types of businesses. And and I, you know, I think that's the future of finance. I really, I really believe that. Uh, certainly if I was 20, you know, if you've got listeners out there who are like 22 and they're thinking about what do they want to do with their careers, I actually think solving this capital gap problem would be, a that would make for a really interesting and a very fulfilling
0: career. Because you're going to have a tough time at the at the cocktail parties running a VC firm, if you're writing a book saying VC firms are the problem and, <laughs> and have to go. <laughs> so, yeah, that seems like you've got there's you really have to dig into it and kind of balance those things. And I like, you know, you basically said Sil- Silicon Valley isn't the problem. They don't have to go. And VC firms aren't the problem. They don't they aren't the bad guy here. There's there's just all these other little issues causing this uh, th- this problem.
2: And you might appreciate this, guy. I don't think you should fight capitalism, right? I mean, I don't think that's the fight to win. Money runs downhill. And so I think what we need to do is create capitalist, i.e. profitable scale models that work to fund the, these other kind of businesses. So it, Silicon Valley will, I, I mean, I be, I'm a capitalist, as I said, right. I mean, the model will work or it won't work if there's too much money and there at, at times too much money flows into Silicon Valley. And then a bunch of funds end up, you know, performing, you know, worse than the market. And then people put their money and they, uh, you know, they turn it somewhere else. Um, and so I, you know, I believe that that will even itself out. And so I don't think that's our problem to solve. I do think that coming up with, Profitable, meaning capitalistic models that work to fund new builder businesses is a problem that's worth solving and, and Elizabeth and I have been spending time really thinking and talking to people about how we solve that.
0: Right and I think I'm a huge believer in capitalism and the, just the fact that it's competition and that's what makes things good. Um, but you guys were addressing you were saying earlier, the book seems to talk a decent amount about um, you know competition only works if the rules if you have a good set of rules, like, if you have the rules set properly, you look at something like the NBA or any sports franchise, they're always tweaking their rules to make the game more balanced, to make it more have more parity in the game. Cause they say, look, we're not really interested in having the, the best team win or the best franchise always win. In fact, we don't want that. We're going to say whoever did the worst last year gets the first pick next year in the best players, because we want there to be parity all the time. And it seems that, you know, it's that's capitalism. Basically you need there to be balance. So then you need there to be fair rules. If you have, you know, the home team always wins because they have their own rules. It's no longer interesting. You don't have a product. And it seems you guys are saying there's a lot of that in business where the rules are being skewed towards the big businesses because the donut shop is probably not writing legislation for senators to pass um, to, you know, to help uh, build a moat around their particular industry.
1: Now, yeah, I agree with you, Sky. And everything you just said is kind of like unassailable, right? But it's
0: more of a rant than a question. But <laughs> yeah, let's run with it.
1: <laughs> okay because what I want to say is that where it gets complicated is it's not just that the rules are created to protect big business, which they are overtly. They're also created to protect white men, right? That's what I've concluded over this career of writing um, in business journalism is that the fundamental reason is actually more about caste. You know, that book that was out, it's more about race and, and protecting white men than it is even about the size of the business, right? Sounds
0: controversial.
1: (laughs) Capitalism Mm -hmm. is is just the way it exists today is just inherently set up to protect the people who have already won. And that is by definition in our culture, white men. So, Hmm. you know, that's why- So, So you're
0: not saying that it's racist. You're just saying the people in control want to stay in control. And they were at one point, put there as all white men um so they're not saying we have to make sure only white men replace us or something like that it's just i mean over time once natural things take their course and the old white men die off um it isn't like they're making sure they're only replaced by other old white men
1: except they kind of are
0: except okay
1: yeah, that's what I wanted to go.
0: I want to see. Uh...
2: Well, there's quite a bit of evidence that uh, that people like to mentor people that look like them. Right. And then we, we talk about it a little bit in the book, but that's that's what Elizabeth's describing. And I think, you know, to go back to your sports analogy, which I really like. We haven't used that before either. Coming up with a lot of new stuff here, Sky. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we I mean, capitalist systems work, but not when they run amok. Right. And so if we and we had examples of this, you know, the sort of the uh, in baseball, for example, before they did a better job with salary caps and things like that, or, you know, the rich teams that had their own uh, TV rights. Right. The Yankees or, or the uh, Red Sox, people like that. They were able to do better because they could spend more. Um, and that's that's the system that Elizabeth's describing as run amok. Right. And what we're saying is, hey, it's OK to put guardrails on a capitalist system. It doesn't make you not a capitalist. Right. It's not socialist to say, hey, we need to have rules um that that ultimately make it better
0: you're not socialist you're you're anarchist if you don't have any rules like the capitalist you have to have rules in a game if you don't have any rules and it's just hey here's a football field and whoever can kill the other team the best wins it's like i'm sorry it's right. not a game anymore this isn't a sport when whoever has the most power makes the rules and they so they can always win
2: well we forget that i mean of course what happens and i you know i mean one thing i do like to call out amongst my silicon valley peers is this sort of an an enamorment with uh, what they describe as as libertarianism. But, um, you know, it's it's fun to be a libertarian when you're already rich. Right. Right. And then, <laughs> and you, you know, in theory, you you feel like you don't need anything. Yeah. Um, we don't need an army because
0: so. I have my own private army. So, <laughs> yeah. And you can
2: afford whatever you want. Yeah. So Healthy it's,
0: people know. always tell everybody else to pull, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I know. Right. They're just all fleeing to their escape houses in New Zealand or whatever. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned, um, I mean, this kind of and I'll go ahead and say it, this this built in racism to an extent, systemic, maybe the old preference for old white men. And it made me throw myself under the bus here a little bit and thinking I was looking for a mentor a while back and I spoke with this woman and I had to say to her, like, this is weird. I I hadn't considered having a woman as a mentor for some reason I hadn't really thought about it. And that's what made me think I hadn't even thought about it. I was picturing an old white guy (laughs) because I'm a middle-aged white guy. And, uh, you know, people always say, you remind me of a young me. They never say you remind me of nothing like me. (laughs) Like, so I, I can see how, yes, it is a natural human tendency to, um, to select people who are similar to yourself. Uh, who 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 look like you as the people that you work with.
1: Yeah. And in fact, you know, we just did a speech last week. It was so interesting where it emerged from the audience that the women were turned off by the word mentor. Like a bunch of them came up after the, the <laughs> conversation and they said, uh, yeah, I love. So I usually describe it as giving um, emotional support to business owners versus mentorship. And they were like, "Oh, we loved it when you said emotional support because mentor again that makes them think of an old white guy, and they don't want an old white."
0: So guy. How do you feel about woman mentor? <laughs> <laughs> there you <go>. yeah.
2: <laughs> Well, but I think it's reflective of the fact that many women have had a bad experience trying mm-hmm. to uh, find mentors, right? Where men either weren't willing to do it or whatever had certain like, yeah. motives.
0: I'll mentor you, come up to my hotel room, let's talk.
2: Right. Wait, <laughs> there's been plenty of that in the world. You know? Right. So, and I, so I, I mean, I think that that might, you know, maybe that's maybe what, what Elizabeth's describing is a need to, to not just think through the model, but also think through how we describe it.
0: Right. And I guess this, a lot of our listeners are younger, and it, this might sound weird to them, and who knows what they're thinking about it. But I would say when you think about who's at the top of all these organizations, there's this lag. So the world they see may be very different or is very different than the world that the people that are at the top of companies or looking at, I'm a VP, am I going to make partner? They grew up in a world that was decades before you and was a bit different in how people interacted and what was acceptable and stuff like that. So you look at how things are today and you, you don't realize the all the people who own football teams the way their brains work and they think about things, the vast majority of them was locked into place in like 1955. Um, So that's the world that they're, they're in like 1955 mindset on how people should interact and on race relations and on, on women's uh, everything and and, and whatnot. So if you're hearing some of this and it sounds a little crazy from your life experience. You know, if you're in your twenties or thirties, your life experience is not what the, world of business is based on
2: what you're describing is why systemic change ha- ha- tends to happen relatively slowly because because of these ingrained views about the world and interaction and, and and by the way there's another layer to that which is that you know if I'm a younger person today and i'm'm I'm, and I'm a person of color and I'm looking up for examples of people like me that are in senior positions there aren't very many right and so uh, you know that change has to take place over time and it gives me new as more and more uh, diversity gets into the senior ranks, it'll give younger people of all t- of, of all different backgrounds, um, you know, people to look up to that, that, you know, aren't just sort of older white males. And, and I think that also will help inspire, it'll help open people's minds and, you know, but that change, it takes a little bit of time. Right. And we're experiencing this in the venture yeah, world.
0: That lag. Uh, and again, well. the young listeners, you know, maybe they have a, a, a person, they have a black man who's, um, in a, a high position in a company and they see the, the views of this person and they don't quite understand them. It doesn't make sense to the world they see. And you have to realize that person grew up and was their their outlook on how things work and their life experience was, um, was solidified in the 1960s. And you just go look at some images of what was going on in the 1960s and race relations and you say, oh, now I understand why that guy thinks this way and has these, these opinions on things. Um, that's the world that person grew up in and it's, it's decades and decades and decades and vastly different than, than the world today, which, you know, still has uh, remnants of all these things and has the hangover of them, but isn't, you know, today isn't the 1960s.
1: But I would just yeah. tell you, Sky, I mean, what you're suggesting, and I love both of your optimism, right? That this change will happen naturally most women don't believe that right we all go around we cough carry coffee mugs that say the patriarchy isn't going to smash itself right Mm. you can't just relax and let this wash over because inertia and capitalism will just tend to favor the people in power so it will take actual action we do need to actively change the system you can't relax and think somebody else is going to do it
0: oh it won't happen on its own i would just say i think you'll there's this lag the the you don't have an immediate feedback loop on the action if you don't take action nothing will happen if people weren't protesting in the 1960s we wouldn't be where we're at today if they just said ah, eventually all the old white guys will die off and then things would be great You're like no no you do have to actually yeah, but the problem is
2: the, the young white guys become the old white guys in that and then what elizabeth's saying is absolutely true right we need to put that's why the pushing for change is so important we can't just sort of assume it'll happen um, and frankly, I think it's perfectly acceptable to say, hey, change needs to happen faster than it would happen naturally. And so we need to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The old saying there's a time to let things happen and a time to make, make things happen. And now is the time to make things happen, right? And I and we and again, you know, venture has all sorts of challenges, but uh, what certainly when it comes to diversity, but, but I believe we're in a moment of actually making things happen, right? I mean, I certainly see this in, in my own practice at, at Foundry and the work that we're doing, which is becoming significantly more diverse because we just made a decision that we, we were letting things happen and it wasn't happening very fast. And now we decided to make things happen. And all of a sudden, you know, it's happening very, very rapidly, right? The last, I think, 12 funds that we've invested in all had ma- majority, minority GPs as an example.
0: And I would say if you have a let things happen versus make things happen mindset, then you do not belong as an entrepreneur (laughs) (laughs) it might be the opposite of the definition of an entrepreneur of I just wait for things to happen. (laughs) Yeah, that's not what they're looking for. Yeah, good (laughs) point. Yeah. Things don't just happen. Well, they do. They will happen to you, but they won't be what you want. Um, yeah. Okay. I think we got to like one and a half of the topics in your book. Um,
2: <laughs> I mean, the truth is that you're, the listeners are just going to have to pick up a copy of the book to get all five. Yeah. So yeah. we'll, we'll just tease it that way.
1: And read it and review it on Amazon.
2: There you go. Yeah. And audible, by the way, I, I realized e, we've got to get, get, click up the audible view or audible reviews. So.
1: Oh, oh. okay. Yeah.
2: That's
0: Absolutely. Next, listeners next get it on audible. Audible's fantastic. So we covered entrepreneurship in decline. Uh, Silicon Valley, redefining entrepreneur, the entrepreneur. Can you quickly mention the last three, just so people know kind of uh, what else they're in for here?
1: Yeah. So we also wrote about the rising generation of the new builders, right? The, one of the fundamental ideas in the book is that the next generation of entrepreneurs are very, are women and people of color, immigrants, as they always have been, um, and older people. So those are the new builders. That's um, the most new businesses are being started by those groups of people, so we need to find ways to support them. Um, the Another of the key themes of the book is that the financial system for new builders um, is is um, fundamentally broken so we need to pay attention to that. Um, we also covered already um, the idea that uh, our love of size, and our love affair with size has gotten toxic. That's another key theme of the book. And the final part of the book is really about the future and the idea that um, entrepreneurs, especially today's new builders, are deeply connected to their communities. Um, And so the work they're likely to do in innovating and building new businesses will fundamentally uh, be driven by their community's needs and desires they're very much about place right and in fact we need that right now and
0: i'd say one of the i think amazing side effects of covid um, would be a little related to that in that i came from a very small town and when you talk about a, a brain drain anybody who is smart enough that's not I don't want to be mean to my friends who still live there, but people get out. This, the best and brightest typically leave and they go off to college and they don't come back and say, oh, now I can know how to make this town better. Um, they go off to other places because that's where the opportunity is. It's where the jobs are. Um, now, with the, work, or the remote work revolution we're seeing, I'm picturing small towns like mine being overrun with people who say I want to live in that lifestyle and work now as long as you have a fast internet connection whereas you've proven Seth you don't even have to have a fast one <laughs> apparently not yeah. <laughs> um, yeah as long as yeah. you have a good internet connection it's like now I can live in any small town I want and bring my talents there and if I'm going to start a business it's you know it'll either be online or I might do something locally here because this is where I live now
2: when if that happens, think about all the businesses that need to spring up around around those small towns to yeah. you know feed, clothe, you know have fun things to do, and and uh, you know I do believe, you know we the the between about two thousand and. Eight, like or 2009, the end of the Great Recession and COVID, we saw this great rise in the power of cities. And, and, I, and I don't think that the urbanization of America, I don't think that's going away. But I do think that there will be much more choice in the future, right? People move, young people move to the cities because they got excited about being in cross- Uh, close proximity to things it's a it's a greener way to live and where the jobs uh, were
0: too like (laughs)
2: yeah and it's where the jobs ended up and and now i think we'll see people have more choice and you know we're certainly in colorado uh you know we we're witnessing that quite a bit just because we have a lot of small towns you know say in the mountains for example uh that do have internet access where people want to want to spend their time and want to live there and so i think that that we'll see quite a bit of that over the next cities uh, you've
0: got competition now get your stuff together man yeah (laughs) They're moving to Colorado. They're moving to the rural areas. Get your stuff together. You're going to be uh, seeing a little decline in population there. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So the book again, um, where did I hide that? The book is the new builders face-to-face with the true future of business. Uh, sounds like we've got a lot of stuff packed into there. And uh, we've, we've been talking here with Seth Levine. He's a, a partner at the foundry group and Elizabeth McBride she's the business journalist And what was the name of your business again? We'll have it in the show notes, Elizabeth, but uh, times of E, times of E. Yes, it stands for times of entrepreneurship. Or if you would just want to buy some glow sticks, she probably uh, you can probably buy those off her site as well. And uh, (laughs) please, uh, please share the show here on social media, tell a friend, and uh, give us a good review on iTunes or, or wherever you listen. And on behalf of the if you market team and Seth Levine and Elizabeth McBride, thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast, where we believe if you market the shit out of it, they will come.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Basically, Such a we, pleasure. We put
0: yeah, something thanks, guys. in there. We market the shit out of it with <laughs> I'm like with funding, I guess, they will come.
2: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, with funding. <laughs> Excellent. And mentorship or help
0: yeah uh, or or women ship or whatever kind of ship you can get
1: emotional support it's emotional just emotional support, support. support.